Doing a daily Bible devotional has been the best thing that I've done for myself. My time in the Old Testament only proves to me again and again and again that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. When I'm reading the New Testament, I read it within the context of when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the New Testament is just an expansion of one of those two thoughts. Those are the two lenses through which I think with my mouth open as I read through the Old and New Testaments. Join me, won't you, for another adventure in Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page, and welcome to another wonderful day in the Lord's neighborhood. I'm Paige, your caffeine-imbued host. Here's my coffee. Ah, in the beginning, coffee. And lo, it was very good. Today, we're going to be starting a new journey into um, a new phase of Israel's life. We've been in the book of Judges, and then we went through Ruth. And now we're going to see the transition between uh, the time of the Judges and when the monarchy was established in Israel. Uh, and Samuel is the pivotal picture here. Now, next to Moses, Samuel is quite possibly the most important Old Testament figure in the history of Israel. Um, primarily because he was the one who set Israel, with through God's help, on the path towards a monarchy. He was the one who anointed Saul. He's the one who anointed David. Now, I've got a little article here um, from my NIV study Bible that I'd like to look at and quote from, and then uh, we'll get started. The first three chapters is the first major division in the book of 1 Samuel. And in a book dealing for the most part with the reigns of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David, it's significant that the author chose not to include a birth narrative of either of those two men, but to describe the birth of their forerunner and anointer, the prophet Samuel. This in itself accentuates the importance that the author attached to Samuel's role in the events that follow. He seems to be saying in a subtle way that flesh and blood are to be subordinated to word and spirit in the process of the establishment of kingship. By establishing kingship in the context of covenant renewal, Samuel placed the monarchy in Israel on a radically different footing from that in surrounding nations. The king in Israel was to be subject to the law of the Lord and the word of the prophet. Samuel's lifetime probably overlapped that of Samson and that of Obed, son of Ruth and Boaz, which we just read about, and who is the grandfather of David. It's indicated that he was well along in years when the elders of Israel asked him to give them a king. I have a timeline here, and you can see um, that uh, this is fair. I guess this is good a timeline as any. Uh, nobody knows exactly sure how when all this stuff happened, but through research, this is kind of this is pretty accurate. We see Israel entering Canaan with Joshua just before, uh, right around 1400. And judges begin to rule. Then the birth of Samuel is about 200 years after judges started. Saul is named king when uh, Samuel is 55 years old. David is named king when Saul is, I'm sorry, when Samuel is, oh, let's see here. 
almost 95 years old, it looks like. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and then you have Solomon's reign, division of the kingdom, book of 1 Samuel written, etc. Right? So you can just see Samuel is a prophet, and he was well along in years before he ever got around to setting up the monarchy through God's help in Israel. Now, uh, there's an issue with the monarchy in Israel. And this is a part, this is a part that always puzzled me. Um, God doesn't have a problem with kings. There's no problem with kings. If a king is bows his or her, if a king or queen bows his or her knee to the word of God, to, and recognizes God's sovereignty, then a kingship under the lordship of God is a wonderful thing. And the fact that Israel wanted a king isn't in and of itself a bad thing. And we're going to see that later on when we get to that point. But we're going to discover that the foundation of Israel's request for kingship was because they were repudiating the rulership of God. It was a vote of no confidence in Jehovah as the Lord of Israel. So while wanting a king is not a bad thing, the reason you want a king is really, really important. And there's a lot of life lessons in that, isn't there? Um, wanting a great deal of money isn't a bad thing. Why you want the money is a bad thing. What you intend to do with that money once you get it is could be a bad thing or a good thing. The money in and of itself is not a bad thing. And one other point as we move on. I taught one year of history, world history and uh, United States history in a uh, Christian co-op. And in that one year of teaching it, it was the most eye-opening experience I've ever had. We as a class, and I, myself and the students together, came to this conclusion. First of all, that man's nature has never changed from the beginning of time. And that's really important because history is a tool that has, a two, has two edges on it, a two-edged sword, if you will. One edge is it's a description of what happened at a specific time, at a specific place, with a specific group of people. You just read the facts. It's like you're reading a newspaper report. The other side, though, history has a futuristic component in that if you accept the fact that man's nature has never changed and then you look at what happened at a specific time and place in history, you can see how people reacted to a certain set of stimuli. And when that same stimuli presents itself again in your time in the future, you have a reasonably good chance of determining and predicting how society will react because, well, man has never changed. So it history has a immediate context, tells you what happened at a certain point in time, but it also has a futuristic component in the fact that it also is a window into a time in the future when those stimuli re-represent re themselves you can understand what's going to happen in the future. So it has a immediate and a future context. 
So having said that, we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to start reading here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain month, excuse me, there was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after this, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now Shiloh is a town in Ephraim between Bethel and Shechem, where the central sanctuary and the Ark of the Covenant were located. After they brought the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan with Joshua, it got set up in Shiloh. And I have a map over here, and you can see uh, Shechem in the north, Shiloh in the middle, and Jerusalem below that. Beth, Shiloh is right between Shechem and Jerusalem almost, almost entire, right smack in the middle of it. And the land set aside for Ephraim. Now, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penana, and, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. Interesting thought here, and I always wondered about this. The tabernacle is referred, is referred to the Lord's house or the house of the Lord, and the tent of meeting. The Lord calls it my dwelling. Now, it's a references from here on to sleeping quarters and doors, giving the impression that at this time, the tabernacle was part of a larger, more permanent building complex. So it looks like maybe they left the external walls they, they with the cloth and everything, like maybe they built a building that replicated the dimensions of the tabernacle. Or maybe they just had the tent up and they just put walls, whatever. It's a more permanent dwelling. Now, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look in your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. That's the Nazarite vow. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. That wine or beer phrase, it's grain alcohol, not distilled. In other words, beer. And, and it's not distilled. It could be wine. Distilled spirits like whiskey, brandy, things like that nature, that was virtually unknown in the ancient world. Written text from Mesopotamia as early as 2500 B.C., 
portrayed the brewing of beer as a major industry. So she would have had access to, it was like a beer. And she was saying he thought she'd been drinking. And she says, don't take your servant for a wicked woman. Now it's interesting, this word for wicked, sometimes rendered as scoundrel or worthless. And later in time, this word was used as a name for Satan, who is a personification of wickedness and lawlessness. So to call somebody wicked and use this particular word, it's a pretty heavy duty accusation. Eli answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. So she says, I'm not a wicked woman. Please don't think I am. I've just been praying here out of out of anguish and grief. And he gives her a blessing. Go in peace. Now, I don't know. It's Something bothers me here that Eli was so quick to jump the gun and accuse her of drinking when he obviously did not know what the truth was. How many times do we do that in our lives? Well, we see somebody doing something and we automatically assume one thing when in fact it's another. Um, when I was very young, I witnessed something that was terrible. And it changed me. I won't go into details, but just know that it was quite possibly one of the most horrific things a five-year-old child could ever witness. And it changed me. What it did to me, my react, the way I reacted to it, was that I started to act out in school. I didn't do this before. But after this event, we moved to a new town. I would act out. I'd become the class clown. I'd always laugh. I was a kid who laughed too loud tried too hard to be funny. And I ended up being really that oddball kid that kids made fun of. I was bullied and made fun of. And um, the children assumed, other children assumed that I was just a weirdo. And they didn't know the context of that weirdness. And one of the other things that happened was I was dyslexic. And dyslexia is a situation sometimes that is very much triggered by very traumatic events like what I experienced. I saw someone get killed in front of me. And later on, years, 40, I was bullied. I was made fun of. Grade school for me was not a pleasant time. I didn't probably have a what I would consider a real, real friend until I got close to high school. And... Years later, 30 years later, I go back home and I'm taking mom's and dad, my mom and dad's ashes back home to scatter them in accordance with their will. And I was talking with a friend of mine and I explained, I shared with them what had really happened when I was five before I moved that town. And they looked at me and they were horrified. They said, Paige, I guarantee you, if those kids that bullied you had known that, they would never have done that to you. God released me from a lot of bitterness with that one statement. And I forgave them on that moment. But the point of that is, those kids when I was in grade school didn't know what was really going on in my life. 
And what they saw coming out of me, which was a result of what had happened to me, they since they didn't know the underlying cause, they just made fun of me. And they bullied me. And they laughed at me. They made me cry. It's an easy thing to just pop off and say something without understanding what's really going on in that situ- in person's life. Eli did that with Hannah. And she says she just says, "Look, I'm not drinking. I'm 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 grieving." And so he was very gently, he just says, "Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him." She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Something happened in her that assured her that God was going to make this all right. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now, when her husband Elkanah went up, with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him there and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now it's customary in those times for women to nurse children three years or more because there's no way to keep milk from turning sour. So they would nurse children as long as they could. After he was weaned, she took the boy with with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and a flower and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. The Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now this word given over, the Hebrew word, sounds precisely like the Hebrew for the word named Saul. It appears like, it's like the author's already hinting that Saul, the one who was asked for by Israel, would also have been Saul, the one given over to the service of the Lord. That every king in Israel should be a Saul in this latter sense. So, uh, this is curious to me. She she wants a child. She's given a child. And now she's going to take that child and turn him over to be raised at the temple by the priests. And he's going to serve there from that point on. Um, and mom isn't going to raise him. That's curious to me. I, I don't, uh, I have to wrap my head around that. It would be like when my son was three or four years old, taking him to um, someplace and as organization, turning him over to be raised by that organization, um, whether it be a church or whatever. A lot of people did that in medieval times. They would bring, uh, there were families who, um, tithed their children. If they had 10 children, the 10th child would be taken to the church to be raised. Um, oh gosh. Um, there was a woman composer 
I can't remember her name at the moment, but she was a 10th child and her mother gave her to the church to be raised. And she grew up to become an incredible philosopher, doctor, uh, powerful woman of God, given to visions, given to prophesying and writing wonderful music. And uh, so that's happened throughout history. I don't understand it, but that's partially because that's not the way our culture does it. It wasn't totally unknown to folks at this time. So I'm just going to put that away and not worry about it, though I don't get it. But Samuel is a blessed child in the sense that he was a direct answer to prayer to his from his mother, Hannah. And he is going to be raised in the presence of the Lord in what used to be the tabernacle. And he is going to be uh, raised. Oh, can you imagine that being raised in the presence of God? I just think that's amazing. All right. So that's our first chapter. Uh, lots of little things we pulled out of this. Um, the things that hit me was Hannah was misjudged by Eli, just like I was misjudged as a child because they didn't know what was going on, the underlying cause of why I was acting out. Eli didn't understand the underlying cause of Hannah's display of grief. And he just jumped to conclusions, assumed she'd been drinking. And uh, when I was a child, people didn't understand my friend and my my uh Contemporaries didn't understand the source of why I was acting out the way I was. And the fact that I couldn't read, I was dyslexic. I couldn't read seriously until like fourth or fifth grade, fourth grade maybe. I don't know, right around there. <laughs> it's a lot of years ago. And I assumed I was stupid because I couldn't read very well. But I didn't understand how that could be connected to what I had seen as a five-year-old. So... That's the thing that spoke to me. Eli was quick to jump the gun. My friends were quick to jump the gun. But when Eli, under, Eli understood the underlying cause of Hannah's actions, his response was very gentle. And she blessed her. And, and he blessed her. When friends who had made fun of me acted like they did towards me, discovered why I had been the way I was, almost instantaneous repenting on their part and apologies. It's, uh, I've, if we're going to walk away with a lesson from this, I think let's make that the lesson. Don't be quick to judge. You don't understand what somebody's going through. When you see them acting out in any way, shape, or form, there's something there that you don't know about probably. Don't be quick to judge. All right. As usual, God gives me something to mull about and think about um, when I read his word. He's always so good that way. Here's my coffee. I'm Paige. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So, what did you think about today's Bible devotional? Email me and let me know your thoughts at ff og at me.com.